0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome. To Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, global CIO at WisdomTree. My co-host is Wharton finance professor and senior economist to WisdomTree, Jeremy Siegel. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. And the views of our guests are their own, and not those of Woodsuptrits affiliates. We have a fascinating show talking about the private markets. We focus so much on the public markets and the economy, but we're going to have a, a really interesting guest talking about what they see on their platform in the private market space. Uh, but, Professor, we've got some more data. We got the markets reacting to the bond market inflation. As you look at to how, how things are trading, what's what's your sense? Another good inflation report this morning.
2: Going on. Um, I mean, let's face it, what has dominated the market has been this rise in yield, incessant rise in yield over the last four to six weeks. Um and caused by two things. First of all, oil continuing to be strong. Um, but most importantly, the economy really being strong. I mean, the trade report today came in very strong. Uh, I see Goldman and several others now raising their estimates, uh, not quite as high as the St. Louis Fed, but northward of 3.5% for the third quarter, which is really strong. So we really have some very strong economic data. I mean, you saw claims again coming in just above uh, 200,000, a very strong number. Uh, we had strong durable goods, a little bit of revision downward from the previous month, but still the momentum going in the sense. So again, I see no slowing in the economy. Now, with that, the economy faces, as we all know, the headwinds of a government slowdown, the headwinds of these higher interest rates, which are now creating mortgage rates uh, you know, north of five, seven 7.5%. I mean, people are talking about potential of, of 8% even on the mortgages. Now, um uh, we did get the case shower index on Tuesday last Tuesday it did show another increase but don't forget case shower is lagged to august before this uh recent rise in rates so we you know it it seems like things will cool off october november if rates stay um uh at this le- level uh we also got the money supply which um, actually declined in um, September um, and uh, um, uh, the first time since April. And uh, it, it, after hitting the bottom, it has risen, but it's risen in a very paltry amount. Actually, I looked at the excess amount of money created through Fed policy from trend since COVID hit. Uh, And it's 12% more money than the trend level. Now it's it's actually 30 or more percent, but from trend, we were three and a half years from COVID. And then I looked at the deviation of the CPI from trend since COVID. And it's also been about 12%. Quite interesting. It's it's very much like we don't want to say the quantity theory of money, that excess money went into inflation. But what's important is this is the first time where I think really that inflation has caught up to the money. So there, you know, certainly may be more excess inflation. But in terms of just the liquidity that's been provided, it's pretty well been absorbed uh, in the system uh, as as we see, um, uh, you know, what else to say? I, again, pressure on yields will bring it down. I, I mean, I, look at right now the S and P is selling at seventeen and a half times next year's earnings. Now, yeah, we can argue there might be a recession next year, and they might be too optimistic. It's seventeen and a half is a very good ratio. Uh, uh, you know, uh, looking at any historical uh, measure. So, I actually think that, you know, I think this provides an opportunity, even with all these uncertainties facing uh, the market. Um, I would think that long term investors should be awarded. I mean, a 17 18 PE ratio, you know, you're you're getting down to almost a 6% earnings yield. Um, you know, I said earlier this year it would be closer to five, and now when we've dipped, um, it's closer to six looking forward. Tips, of course, have risen to 2.2. But uh, you're still getting a three and a half to four percent advantage, I think, on on equities long term over fixed income assets. You uh, on that money supply point, you've been uh, you're out there also
1: on the wires this this week. You have a an op ed in Barrons talking about the Fed uh, really shouldn't be excused from this inflation. You want to give us yeah. your thesis from the Barrons piece?
2: Yeah, there we, we I have an article of Barrons online. Um, That, uh, you know, before we heap praise on Powell for perhaps, and I I stress the word perhaps, performing the immaculate disinflation, which is the reduction of the inflation rate without causing excessive unemployment, we should keep in mind who to blame for all the situation we're in with all that excessive liquidity. And I spell out in the article what should have been done, uh, what they ignored and why we are in the situation uh, that we're in, uh, you know, today. So, um, you know, it's sort of like, uh, everyone wants to give praise to the fed after, you know, it's like the fed hit a pedestrian and, uh, then rushed him to the hospital very fast. So he didn't die, but, uh, the injuries are there and the American public have suffered through the worst inflation in 40 years, something that did not have to happen to the degree that it happened. Some increase in prices to be sure. But um, as I spell out, the increase of the money supply exceeded all historical norms.
1: There's a lot of people talking about the shutdown, and we talked about the silliness from the Republican side to think that they could do this. Is s And there's sort of some worries on um, what what's it mean for our borrowing, the the the, the overall yeah. ratings do you think that any of the rise in yields is starting to be concerned about the debt levels is i know you've said the only way yes. to get people's house yeah, in order I, I, is re- I, I, and you know
2: i have not stressed that and uh, you know we're, we're running a one and a half to two trillion dollar deficit and we have quantitative tightening which is adding a trillion dollars right um almost a trillion dollars uh, to the system now three trillion dollars is, you know, that's 10 percent of the debt or 8 to 10 percent of the debt. Now, if we grow 3 percent in real terms and 3 percent in nominal terms at 3 percent inflation, we, we get a 6 percent nominal. So we're still raising that debt to GDP ratio, although nowhere near as serious as it sounds. I still think that the major cause of the rise in yields is the strength of the economy, and the continued, you know, basically worried that that bonds are not going to serve hedges to shocks in the future. Um, that could that correlation of um of uh, of of uh, uh, that gives you the hedge asset. However, I'm I am looking into you know what is going to happen here. I think there's still a lot of capacity for debt worldwide. Will there be a downgrade or not? You know, I've poo-pooed and still, we're still the world's currency. It's still not been replaced. We have the highest real yields in the world, and we've had the best stock market in the world. So, I mean, we're still the magnet for capital and investment. So I'm not going to put that as the number one cause. I'm going to put that as the number three cause, the first one being strong economic growth and, and uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, recognition that the bonds are not going to be the type of hedge instruments that they've been in the last 40 years.
1: And so I, I know next week we would usually look forward to the, the jobs report. You think we'll get some jobs data
2: next week? Yeah, now we got the that. You talk about flying blind. Well, you know, that Fed can't afford. <laughs> they have a November 1st meeting. So we do have four, four, four or five weeks. Uh, I'm trying to remember the 20, is it the 26 day shutdown during Trump's administration? We got some of the data and not others. And honestly, I haven't, I did not remember which we got. So, um, but that's going to be, it's really a, certainly a problem in terms of the decision. My feeling is, let, let's, let's face it this way. If by November 1st, we do not have the government up and running we're not going to have a radiant increase because the economy is going to be facing some big challenges if we don't have anything in 35 days well on, on that
1: bright note we'll, we'll let you uh, we'll <laughs> let you go for the weekend have thanks for joining us to start the show thanks for some great commentary as always thank, thank you jeremy we'll see you again <laughs> next week um we're going to turn the conversation over to Howie Ng from Forge Private Markets. They've got a, a very interesting platform. Where we talk a lot about that in his role. But, but Howie, you know, in, in the private markets, it's not always great, easy to get some data, but that's one of the value propositions that, that of your group uh, at Forge. Tell us a little bit about this private market index you've created. I want to get into what it says about what's going on in the private markets, which is, which is quite interesting. So tell us a little bit about the index
0: yeah so um, so the index is actually sort of brought out of the data business of Forge, and just you know for 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 the listeners, um Forge is actually a um, marketplace uh, it has two two major pieces of business. It has a marketplace that we actually have a lot of uh, secondary trading happening in which we actually observe the liquidity, observe the data, and then we use that um to as the sort of the building blocks along with other people's um transactions to 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 build this index. So um, what the index has actually shown us is that if you kind of take a, a longer term view, because we actually build the index like, you know, uh, like, like a public market, as opposed to some of the indices usually find in the private market, where um, it's kind of more stale and more point in time and space on sort of like fund level return. This is actually based on actual companies, right? Actual like a company level return going back four years. And we have seen that, you know, as as an asset class itself, late-stage VC-back asset class, it still actually outperform um, small cap. Um, it still outperform, um, you know, things like the IPO, um, ETF. Um, but recently, it actually has been sort of like the NASDAQ QQV, for example, because of AI and that kind of a shorter term sort of momentum. Um, it, it started to sort of like underperform NASDAQ. So longer term, the index is telling the story that from a return perspective, this is still a really attractive asset class to go in. Um, year to date, the index is down sixteen <laughs> percent, which um, which is kind of like a fascinating number if you sort of think about it. Like, you know, first of all, this is the first time that I think well, I've I've worked in this industry for a long time. But when you ask me how the private market is actually doing without an index in mind, I usually can just kind of like quote individual companies, premium discounts, and whatnot. But now we actually have a tool to see that. Okay, we think the market is down sixteen percent. And the more interesting is that you contrast that to say like the IPO ETF, which is like up about 30%. And that is a year to date number, right? But Jeremy, like the thing that is actually super interesting the last three months is that the index is now actually up like maybe 2%, I would call it, um, whereas you actually have... The public equity market actually kind of going down a little bit in the last three months. So, you do see a little bit of reversal. Mm. Um, so, it speaks a lot to the lead lag effect as well between public and private.
1: Yeah, I put out on, on Twitter this morning, like, who's facing the pain from higher rates? And I, I put a snapshot of your chart. So, if people want to go to my Twitter handle. You can find uh, a, an image from the Forge site. And you can, how often are you updating this index every day? Is it every day that you're, you're updating the, the values?
0: yeah we actually run it on a on a daily basis, but this is the private markets so on the website we just put it out we just update it once a week okay um as you can see the price discovery is not going to be as fast as the public market so once a week is is enough at this point, but we run it daily yeah
1: yeah, and so the sixteen percent versus like a twenty six percent you got the nasdaq which is up more than the s and p so it is quite an interesting view of private markets being down when sort of the tech growthy being up now. I, I, when I put it out on Twitter, somebody said, one of my, my friends wrote back saying, hey, is this just a normalization of 2021 where pr- the private markets were up 100% and so sort of these tech stocks were down in 2021? Do you think this is just this normalization of things coming back? Was there something before the Fed started raising rates that you had private markets booming? Or do you think today's reality from private markets is more of the public markets have to catch up? What do you think?
0: That's a really good question. I I do think that um, we're never going to see a 2021 kind of a bubble boom again. But even leading up to 2021, if you look at the index you and know, um, look at the chart, if you play around with it, you can actually see that the IPO ETF was actually running up, like even in late 2020. Before the private market actually sort of like caught up, so I think a lot of these, um, you know, late stage VC-backed private market, there's a lot of strong correlation to the success of the IPO market, right? You saw the IPO ETF ripping in two thousand twenty, and then followed by a lot of private companies trying to go public, and then that caused a huge bubble in twenty twenty one, and then sort of like a huge crash. So. It's interesting to see so much money going into sort of like the private space. So the shape of the curve when you look at the index is the same, but just the parabolic move of the uh, of the private is much higher. Now, now I think it's actually slightly different because I think you know you, you heard a lot about you know people are saying that you know we, we don't know where valuation is right now. So I think what we have observed is that companies now either they do another round or they're going public. They're taking, they're still taking a really, really big haircut, um, which is which is what we call like the great reset versus sort of like the last funding round. If they all raise in two thousand twenty one, those are super lofty sort of um, valuation. So now, um, as companies either try to go public, so they have to actually sort of apply on the share price, or they raise another round, we're still in the market cycle of things are like getting resetting, maybe going down a little bit more. Um, but I do think at some point, if the public market momentum persists, you know, like you know, Professor Siegel was saying, like if the rates thing, if in three months or something, if things that kind of come back, we are we are seeing the reversal of trend. So I'm hoping that the the the, the private market will follow. So, you know, maybe maybe this is the time to go public and 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 long private. I don't know.
1: <laughs> in- interesting. Um, talk a little bit more about that discount because in some of your reports on these private market indexes you talk a little bit about that discount to the last round any data? i saw a quote um that you're in in may saying you know the i think it was like the median discount might have been as much as 60 percent if if that if i'm getting that quote accurately from your website but what 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 do you see as discounts today and somehow how you gauge these discounts across the peer universes
0: Yeah, so we're seeing um, companies are still like, for example, Instacart, they just actually went public, right? So then when they went public, it's discount as of the public price was 75% versus this last funding round. So a lot of things are still in sort of like a 40, 50% reset from the last funding round. Um, So I think that spread eventually is going to kind of come come down a little bit as sort of like if the public market does well, more companies going public, people become a little bit more bullish. In, in the private market, things will catch up. So I think that discount will, will reduce, but it's still the 40, 50 range um, versus the last funding round. Now, the last funding round is also a very point in time, um, data point, Jeremy. So if you think about the index itself, like I said, the last three months is up like 2%. So, so, so that kind of speaks to like, you know, if you actually have a chance to get into the, the private market, not through the last funding round, but through a continuous sort of like liquidity pool, which is what this index is built on, Instacart, for example, if you got it at the beginning of the year, you were actually up 30-something percent. Um, if you actually could get into the private market, most of the return actually is still in the private market. Um, and then sort of like when it comes to IPOs, sometimes things kind of either get game out or first few days of IPOs are pretty volatile. Things have been trading down.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about the index itself. I mean, you talked about this venture capital-backed, Private business. As you thought about building a private market index and all the challenges, uh, you, we, you talk about like the unique vantage point that Forge brings to the table. But how did you think about what goes into this index? What are the, when we talk about this index being down 16%, who, who are we seeing in this index? How did you get to the list of, of companies that are there?
0: Yeah, so we we kind of start with so this there's about 600 called unicorns. So this is all in the venture back space first of all. So it's not sort of like the other sort of like private equity. So venture back, you know, VC back sort of high growth companies. So I kind of first of all think that the cousins of these companies would be like either small cap growthy stocks or sort of like growth tech stocks. That's why we use IPO and sort of like small cap as the benchmark. So that is the universe. And within that, I think in the U.S., there's about 600 to 700 unicorn when I sort of last check, of which about half of them, so like call it about 250 names, actually have offered um, the employee secondary liquidity for the most part, meaning like they allow the shares to be traded in the private market, just like in the public market, which is what we traded on the platform. Of those, we chose the ones that are most liquidly, that, 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 that have the highest liquidity the 75 relative to the others, because we believe that gives you sort of like a good sort of like price discovery information rather than stale information. So.
1: It, it, that, that leads to this interesting question of, you know, they're called the private markets, but there's trading that there's this in, in a way it's a semi-public form of trading. It's just not, you know, traded on a major exchange. It's traded on these, what do what, what you call it? A secondary exchange, a private markets exchange. <laughs> Who Talk a little bit yeah. about that dynamic.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting, it's kind of like, if you think about sort of, there is a barbell of sort of like liquidity, you have sort of the the super early stage, um, you know, on the left hand side, call it like the most illiquid, and you might have the most sort of like liquidity premium in those stocks, and then you have sort of like the public market on the other side, right, those are, and then the secondary market sort of like is the in between, especially on the late stage, Usually, it like I said, it's a function of I think um, companies are staying private longer, so employees actually have to realize. Um, if you look at the, you know, look at back in the day when sort of like Amazon, the amount of time that it took Amazon to go public, they wanted to go public as soon as possible because that's how they sort of like realize liquidity. That's where sort of like the, the the wealth creation is. But now these days, I think you know in terms of companies going public, they, they, they usually just choose to stay private longer. So so then all when 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 that happens, it put pressure on the first of all the company itself because of employee retention. They want to make sure that they could actually realize that liquidity. So we are seeing 10, 15 years of companies staying private, much, much longer before they go public now these days. So that's that's how the secondary market kind of like comes about. And as the market becomes more robust, you you start it start to act more like the public market.
1: Yeah, this impacts the stakeholders on both sides in the sense of it impacts the employees who are maybe compensated in stock options and stock who then can't, you know, monetize for a while. You know, now that they maybe it's good, it's good for them to sort of ride the growth of their companies, but maybe, you know, the companies, as you see 60% down, they should have been able to cash out a little bit, diversify their, their income. But then it also impacts the, Public investors and and this the narrative has gone a lot that you know equity investors are not getting access to some of the growth they used to because these companies are staying private longer, and so they need to think about their asset allocation differently and try to get access to some of that growth that used to that they get in the public markets as, as you think about that from a, from a asset allocation perspective is is that one of the trends causing institutions going more to private markets or or what do you think is is the net effect of all this staying private longer?
0: I think the net effect of staying private longer is, you know, number one, you know, companies actually, um, it's, it's actually, some, it's a double-edged sword, right? So if you go like Forge went public, last year it didn't stay private um, forever because I think there was a window to sort of like get this sort of with the public liquidity, but then it comes with all the um, requirements of being sort of like a publicly traded company. Um, so I think companies who could, could, could afford to stay private longer, um, and they can still continue to get good, robust you know venture capital private money funding might choose to do so because there's really no big benefits of them actually going public um so there is that piece but i also think that um from a investor perspective right you know um i think the one way to think about it is that it all of a sudden provides a lot more access Right, not just access of liquidity from an employee perspective. So I think kind of like where where Forge sits, we kind of think about ourselves as like an ecosystem. So number one, we let the employee access liquidity by bringing buyers and sellers together. So you're see you're starting to see the majority of the sellers are some of these like employees that actually hold the shares of these um, private companies, um, but then you're starting to see institutional investors, especially the ones that are not so bound by sort of like, oh, I can only do public equity, I can relax some of my investment policy, I can buy some in the growth, you know, um, the growthy area of the private market, but not go super early. Um, they, they would tend to kind of come into the space and, and look look for exposure and look for performance. So we also provide access of investment opportunities to um, investors who otherwise would not actually kind of entertain this particular asset class.
1: When you think about what you're seeing the signs today, and you mentioned your your own company went public, you know when you think about the, I, I I framed you know part of my 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 view of your your chart when I first saw it, I said, "Man, this is a really interesting chart." But when you think about those higher rates today and the impact of these sort of discounted rounds to the last models, do you think that makes it? And, and we people talk about this recent IPO. Phase with with arm coming out, trying to capitalize on the AI excitement recently. And then Instacart, not really related, but but you mentioned very down round to their last. What yeah. do you think is 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 this market environment going to keep the IPOs more closed or or open? Do you think we're going to see more because hey, they can't get the private funding at the valuations they used to? The public markets are the only way. What do you have a net sense there?
0: I think. Um... I think so much of it's it's too early to tell because there's only a three, four deals. But I think the, the sense that I get is that it's it's going really it's gonna be very sector specific and it's gonna be also very sort of like name specific. So part of it would be the success of these subsequent ipos whoever that is kind of like sitting on the sideline waiting for arm Like arm is actually a very different company say like you know it's not actually a venture-backed company um so they have been around for a really long time but let's say you think about clavio for example it's a vc-backed company in marketing automation software um you have instacart those are vc-backed company. so i think a lot of vc back companies are sitting on the sideline waiting to see how these names actually kind of perform because it's not just about going ipo it's also about you know data point that they can use to inform the next funding round. Remember, 2022, you know, there's a lot of VCs, was, you know, during the trough, a lot of VCs were still sitting on a lot of dry powder, so you actually still get funding. Um, but a lot of companies have chosen to kind of like, you know, not go public or not take a down round if they still can, because they just don't want to take a down round. So I think the IPO landscape will inform whether or not people want to go out and do another round or continue to go public. Yeah. But also the performance of the underlying stocks in private. Because when um if you look at Instagram and cloud you even look at the index, our uh, index actually shows you sort of like the year to date return. Um, given the recent reversal from like super negative, negative negative 16% year to date to recently like up about three percent, a lot of names are starting to trend positive. And if you see more names trending positive in, in you know, that could actually become sort of like your potential list of potential IPO candidate because <laughs> these are late-stage companies. If the performance is doing well, they might want to like go to the public market.
1: Yeah. And so you do have on, on Forge Global, you do have this people can find the private market index and, and the index composition is, is public. You could, you could, I'm, I'm, I don't have a special login. I'm just on your, your, your main site page. And you could see the companies, you could see your qu- quarter date, year to date returns. You have some sectors, classifications, uh, uh, uh on this, um, and and so people can track this all the time. And 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 now is this this is mainly using the Forge data for getting the marks when you when you put together the marks on these uh, this index.
0: Yeah. So the the definitely in the in the back test because we actually wanted to do it like you know the, the a proper constructing in- in- index way. So we actually back test to 2019. A lot of the data came from because you know Forge because Forge has been sort of a, is one of the biggest with the longest set of data, but. Ongoingly, we actually are continuing to consolidate and sort of like um aggregate data point from other other platforms as well because it's so fragmented, both data and liquidity in the space. We believe in like you need you need, you need to continue to aggregate that. So so we're gonna have more and more third-party data. Of course, we cleanse them and we kind of make sure that they look good um, to be to be included into the index. So
1: how many those platforms are there today. What what what? And what percent goes through Forge? Do you, would you say is con- combined from these other these other sources?
0: There's not too many um, in, in the US. Maybe like four or five total. Um, I, I think Forge actually has the majority of of of, of the volume um, in in terms of like everybody that's trading across all these platforms. Yeah,
1: very interesting. Are there any anecdotes of companies, things that you've seen at the company level that tells you uh, an interesting story about what's happening in, in these private markets?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, if you kind of just look at um, if you sort the the index page, if you actually sort by the year to date return number. Um, you know, and then you look at the the more recent like quarter-to-date number. So a lot of times, I, and I look at that, and I kind of compare to like what is actually out there from a from a news and sentiment perspective. Typically, you see a lot more kind of like a movement when there is actually either rumor or news about a company potentially confidentially have filed as one or potentially are gonna go public. So we definitely saw that in Instacart and Clavio, which is the two names that actually went public. Um, and then the next one, I think um, Rubrik is actually an enterprise software name that we actually is actually a more like a cyber company. So it's enterprise software and cyber subsector um, that we actually have seen quite a bit of um, upward swing in, in, in the in the recent period is up 41% quarter to date. Um, So I think that that could be a good, good candidate to potentially, you know, at some point have an exit. Yeah, Yeah, ZipLine as well. I I don't know if you're familiar with ZipLine's company.
1: It was that I see. I actually I see it in your when I sort the page. I see it as a logistics company. Is that uh, I don't know anything
0: more about it. It's like a drone delivery company. Actually, they make delivery using drones. So um, you know, it, this is the private market, right? So there's a lot of innovation that's um, pretty cool. Yeah.
1: So that's part of the AI story, but also the e-commerce story. It's like gonna help Amazon deliver deliver packages.
0: Yeah. You <laughs> can think about it that way. Yes. Yeah.
1: When when you look at the sector shift of uh, the sector allocation of your index, um yeah. It is interesting what the the top subsectors are: cybersecurity, data management, sales, and and ad tech, data intelligence, blockchain. Um, how how much has these shifted? I mean, is this an interesting uh, any interesting insights from what you look at when you look at these sectors?
0: Yeah, so first of all, if you take a step back and look at the sector, that's why I think the index, you know, I believe that we kind of constructed it to sort of like really this represent the exposure of the private market, because this is actually subsector, so it's not, you know, you think about it, it's very intuitive, right? So the 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 the, the big sectors that roll up to, you know, cybersecurity and whatnot, they roll up to enterprise software, it's actually the biggest sector in, in the index, you don't have it on the chart here, but fintech is the second biggest one, right? But when you put it next to something like an IPO, ETF, but mostly I actually compare it to the um, Russell 2000 sector composition, right? So the, the sort of like the public sort of public indices, um, call it for the, like, I don't know, I don't want to say old economy, but you know, this this is more like the innovation economy. But the big ones are the financials and the healthcare and whatnot in the public industries. But when you come to the private market indices, the big ones are like not surprisingly, enterprise software um, um, and fintech, cybersecurity and whatnot. So, so that, there is definitely a distinction here. It hasn't actually shifted that much in the last four years. It's not like every single time we rebalance, a new sector actually show up. Like Enterprise software is still the chunkiest. You do see some of the smaller sector coming in over time, but for the most part, it is actually pretty stable at like the taxonomy.
1: Now let's say, so you're people listening to this, this show, uh, on Sirius and you have, you have shares that you want to sell. Is it, is it basically those companies need to, co- need to they need to contact their, their CFOs and have the CFOs try to connect with a platform like Forge? Like what, well, I guess there's, there's a, it's a marketplace. So there's buyers and sellers. So let's say you have shares. Are, are companies reaching out directly to you guys to make some of these transactions happen?
0: I think it's both um, because the market share, um, the marketplace. I think this is the, for a transaction to happen. It's kind of like this. this I like the public market. When I when I first came into this space, it's really interesting. This is the place where for a trade to happen, you actually need to have three parties, right? So the company actually has to approve it. Um, And obviously the buyers and sellers have to kind of come to an agreement because, um, because for the most part, you are getting onto a company's cap table. So to answer your question, yes, the CFO might come to come to a forge and say, I I want to run a program. So I just want to offer this program programmatically like a big liquidity event, but it's like just one time only um, kind of like tend a tender offer kind of opportunity in the public market. Um, but a lot of times um, because the company actually allowed the employees to actually trade. So the employees can come to forge directly subject to the approval, of course, When in, in the end when, when, when they sold the shares. Yeah.
1: So how much work is, is that? So every, these type of companies have these agreements and, and then they, they're able to go on to these other marketplaces and, and it's like a standardized type of agreement that people would have in place that, that they could just bring it to you.
0: Some is more standardized than the others, um, it certainly is not stand, nearly as standardized as sort of like the um, public market. So settlement and, you know, price discovery and that kind of thing, it just takes longer because, you know, that's the nature of the private market.
1: And so who are the buyers on the platform? So talk about, so you talked about who would come, they'd likely be employees, it may be, uh, you know, an institutional investor who had bought earlier rounds, an angel investor in some of these, these early stage companies, but who are who are the buyers?
0: Yeah, so this actually is interesting, right? So you actually have a pretty clear bifurcation for the most part. The seller side is mostly sort of employees. I mean, there are sort of like institutional funds and, you know, funds that actually buy from the employees they might want to sell over time. Um, The buyers are typically sort of like your regular um, institutional investors, you know, from family offices to, you know, small secondary fund to sometimes um, institutional long only fund. Um, Most of them are, are institutional investors.
1: Now, talk about your background. So, you, you you came from the public market space towards the private market space. Talk about talk about what you did before coming to Forge, Forge Global.
0: Yeah, I was you know I was at BlackRock <laughs> for for a really long time. Um, started in um, on the systematic active equity side, so I was doing systematic you know active, active equity stock selection. I was a portfolio manager there. So it's all about data. And when you're like doing quant systematic, right? So you're not, you so it's very natural that now I'm actually liking this data work that I'm doing at Forge. Um, the second part of my career at BlackRock, I was actually in the ETF um, product strategy side of things. I was actually creating innovative ETFs um, um, for, for BlackRock, the iShares business, yeah.
1: We share some things in common there. Um, but so now as you think about, you're creating this data business at Forge what's the what's the goal i mean so you have this index um what wh- what's next after having created this index
0: i think you know just like any kind of index business i want to take a, take a playbook of the business that you and i want well, you're still in there my previous business which is you always want to create the next index again for this index actually i kind of think about it's more like a benchmark play like for the most part you know like all the questions that we just covered today right what how, how does this work What does the performance look like? Do you know it's actually down 16% and whatnot? And if you think about the construction of this index, it's actually very tilted towards, where where potentially this is becoming more investable, right? If I'm curating 75 names out of a pool of names that are actually being actively traded in the secondary market, right? I think the second product that I would like to do is to then say, take whatever we have built And either relax some of the constraints or sort of like add some more stuff to it so that we can actually make more like an investable product, which is now you can actually replicate an index performance. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that is something that I feel very excited about in terms of the, 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 the future of sort of like the index, you know, college strategy of Forge.
1: And and when we think about our worlds, your old world, my new, my my continuing world about the liquidity, and this becomes a key question is how tradable do these things? Does it have enough capacity? Does it have enough liquidity? What what are the types of screens you think you could put on your index that would make it more investable? And what is the type of liquidity you think that people, the, the nuances of something that would come out in the product form, like what, what would have to do to make it investable?
0: I think a couple of things. One is I probably would, um, so right now this particular index, you know, I just kept it simple. Um, it's equal, equally weighted and then it's rebalanced on a quarterly basis, right? So obviously the key costs in this space is actually much higher than the public market. Um, so I would definitely slow down the, the turnover. Um, and then I probably will further screen the 75 names into probably a smaller subset of names, right? So I don't know, in the ETF role, 25 names, you can probably create an ETF. Some people can get away with 10 names, depending on the diversification rule. I'm not thinking about putting this into creating a product to put into an ETF wrapper, though. Right, right? like US 40 Act requirement. I know that from my previous life that this is not going to be day one a um, ETF wrapper kind of a product. But there are other registered total product and and framework like the you know interval funds, quasi close end funds that are actually more suitable for something like this. So turnover constraint is um, just one of the things I would look at. Um, I probably will look at some market cap screen as well. So maybe just get get the larger companies and, and raise sort of like the liquidity constraint and maybe put in some quality screen. I mean, there, there is a way to kind of like, you don't have financial statement. It's hard to come by, but you can think about it like, you know, hey, maybe I just look at companies who have successfully raised X amount over the last how many years as sort of like a qualifying candidate. So, you know, make it more like a quality screen kind of thing, yeah.
1: That is an interesting point in terms of you don't have the fundamentals to evaluate. Um, so when these people are in buying these companies, they're buying it on the momentum, what they see, but they don't get the same access to reporting on how these companies' sales or profits, if they have any profits, are, are, are doing?
0: I think for the most part, I think for the most part, I, the sophisticated investors, like I said, you know, institutional investors, sometimes they do have a view, um, you know, they do have some of this information, because they actually have access to, right, at the same time, they also are observing sort of like, okay, um, maybe the price is actually trading away from their fundamental view. So they do step in and they provide this kind of a arbitrage, you know, typical arbitrage kind of a role. So you do have some subset of investors on that. Um, And then at the same time, you know, um, some of the smaller investors, yeah, they they usually are just trading based on sort of like, you know, the the prices that we're actually telling them. And for the most part, the prices are actually in line with the, the the funny thing is that the, the index prices, for example, is actually a blend of, you know, both primary and secondary prices. So for the most part, they are kind of like surprisingly feeling pretty lockstep. So it's not like you're at a huge disadvantage when you don't have the fundamentals.
1: I mean, the reputation of private investing, um, and and when I when I talk about it, when you see it commented on Twitter and in these social media platforms, um, there's there's some sort of famous investors who talk about it as as. Volatility laundering is one of the terms our friend Cliff Astness has has made in terms of, hey, these public companies don't get marked. And so they say if you're a private investor, hey, you can't trade these things. So, you're, you know, your marks don't update all the time. It, it, would you say that's uh, how, how would you respond to that? And is, is this sort of forged private markets index part of the solutions to these these things not getting yeah. marked all the time?
0: Well, that's exactly why we launched the Forge Private Market Index because we market it on the same <laughs> page, and now part. actually I put it out there. <laughs> I, I do think it will get better, but you got to start somewhere because I actually don't believe that you know you're always going to have a big gap. I don't really believe that because you you do have that kind of a uh, um, you know sort of like relationship between public and private. But I really really do think that the gap is going to get smaller over time. Like you know um, if you think about any kind of a major asset class, if you think about high yield. I yield bonds back in, you know, like the early, I don't know, nineties, two thousands or something like that, to spread and that kind of opacity around that. You know, this is we're we kind of like in that space, but look at how far we have come from a fixed income instrument perspective. So, you know, I, I do believe that. And I think launching the index and having a data business is actually the first step towards sort of like bridging that gap and hopefully, you know minimize a little bit some of these um, narrative out there um because we actually we actually have more this private discovery data point than just you know um point in time kind of funding our data yeah what,
1: what what do you think so is you created the index on the venture capital backed high growth companies not the you said not mentioning the traditional later stage private companies, so if you say that's the other part that people do a lot of private equity investing in. Is there a reason for that? Is it because there's not as much activity in those companies? You think people are more interested in these growth companies or should these later stage private businesses also be doing something with the, this platform?
0: I think the earlier stage ones, um, I, I, we, can, we can make an early stage index today. I just don't think realistically it's going to become very investable. Um. So he's going to be. Oh, I mean know, later stage. Sort of I mean,
1: I I mean like these these private equities. You know, like a pri- more traditional private equity than venture capital. So, not, like let's oh, say like oh, a, like see. like a LBO type thing or yeah. big bigger more established businesses, but also are now private, so that they might have the same issue of hey, they might compensate employees with stock, but they don't and they don't have the liquidity.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I don't actually see a lot of um, um, companies that are kind of structured that way that allow for sort of like a lot of secondary trading. And sometimes maybe they're just trading, trading like private equity fund interests as opposed to, you know, I, I, I think, look, we have to sort of stand behind what we build. So like if I can't build a good product based on the data that I have, I, I don't really want to do it. Yeah. Um, so I think PE itself actually is just a lot more opaque at the company level when when it comes to like observable data.
1: And they're just, and those companies maybe they don't they don't have as many people who are interested in the shares. It's, it's an interesting question. I'm I'll, I'll, I'll actually be with a a private equity guy later today. I'll, I'll see what he what he thinks about this conversation. Uh, I mean,
0: the, yeah, the, uh, one other thing I will say about private equity is like if you think about from a sensibility perspective, right, like the the VC guys are, you know, VC wants to see a company grow. They invest in it. They want to see the company grow. So it's kind of like a long only like a, a long trade kind of a story right private equity you know the the motivation is different right they actually want to restructure the company they want to gut the company for the most part they want to take leverage so i think it just makes it a little bit more difficult as well from sort of like okay how does it fit into your portfolio if you really actually build something like an index and whatnot that actually become sort of like a data like an exposure that you want to hold like you know uh, uh, do you yeah so i, I think stock selection and name selection become a lot more important in, in private equity.
1: When when you think about how all this stuff fits into people's portfolios and uh, how, how much do you think people should put into private markets? And it's certainly not easy for the general person listening to the show to get access. Um, so I think you know, to your point on, hey, somebody needs to productize this in a way that the, more people can access to, because usually there's all these restrictions on, private market investor, you got to be an accredited investor, all sorts of institutional requirements. That to democratize this would be a great thing at some point for more people. Um, but for the right. people who, who can access, what do you think a, a real asset allocation to these types of markets or, or private markets in general should be?
0: Don't really have a very good answer to that. I think, you know, we are actually still kind of like modeling at this point. We're still sort of like modeling because I first want to make sure that, okay, you can kind of get access. And then... In terms of access, we, I don't want to just model like one or two stocks, you know, stock selection kind of access. So that's why index investable index. Um, you, you, I, I would go. I would probably first look at selling out of some of your growth equity allocations, so maybe small cap growth or even like large cap growth. Um, probably from there. So I don't think it's going to be anything more than five percent. Um, you know, if, if that in, in the in the short term uh, realistically, yeah.
1: Now, why do these institutions have so much heavy allocation to what you might call privates? Or do you think do you think the institutions have too much to privates?
0: In my opinion, yes. I actually think that things are a little bit sort of like. You know, if you go talk to in- institutions today, they probably are saying, "Um, Yeah, don't talk to me about this product because we have too much allocation to privates today. So so I think, you know, but, but uh, so I, that's why I, I like the idea of democratizing this a little bit. I actually think the little guys actually don't have enough access don't have enough exposure to this space. Um, institutions might change the way they think about this because they typically have allocation to a fund. Right. Like you 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 have like, you know, the, the big institutions, they potentially might they they usually just hire a good BC, hire a good sort of like private equity sort of manager. They have allocation to those funds and they use Cambridge Associates and whatnot as sort of like the benchmark. Now the institution sort of like one day they say, you know, you know, remember back in the days, like alpha and beta separation kind of thing. People are like, I don't want to buy an active fund and pay these money. Like, I can just buy ETF. I can just swap it with low cost, diversified exposure. I do think over time there is some institution might go towards that route. But to answer your earlier question, which is like, do you think they have too much exposure today? Actually, I think they do.
2: <laughs>
1: I love it. That's how we should have started. Hot take from Howie. <laughs> Institutions are over invested to <laughs> private Markets and that and and it comes now you could there is this this you could see the benefit where hey getting the marks every day you know is is tricky you know and uh, it 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 leads to this sort of bad behavior and getting locked in in some ways people talk about if you could just lock people in they'll they'll have better behavior they won't freak out when markets are are declining so actually seeing less marks is, is possibly beneficial to the public markets if people don't look at their statements all the time but. You know, it it is this, this thing where they, there's a lot of high fees in in some of these markets, and and that also doesn't uh, the incentives there are, are are for people to sell the the more expensive stuff. So it's it's very interesting conversation. Anything as you take about your experience working at BlackRock, trying to bring that to the private markets? Any other interesting comments on the the state of the ETF industry or the the investment markets generally?
0: When I was at BlackRock, I always wanted to crack because I was, when I was in the ETF team, when I was in sort of like, you know, the systematic and alpha team, like I didn't really think much about this. I mean, there we were just thinking about how do we kind of um, play the IPO space? <laughs> um, and then when it comes to sort of like um, the ETF side, we, the, the thing that everybody wanted to crack and nobody really cracked, and yes, you, you might know this, is like this whole liquid alt. Bucket, like how do you sort of like replicate this whole thing in an ETF wrapper kind of thing? Right, there was some interesting paper like back in the day, like I actually saw it was some there there was an argument that you could potentially, you know, um, VCs are first like private investors are first sector investors before they become a stock investor. So if you pick the right sector and you kind of group them together, you potentially can get to some kind of a reasonable sort of exposure and express to an ETF wrapper, right? So I think that could be something interesting now that with this index that we actually have, you could correlate the index returns to a bunch of sector ETFs and do some kind of a sector rotation strategy. Now, it still probably will have a very high correlation to public equity, but you know, that would be some, something kind of interesting from a liquid op perspective. I, I, I truly think that you know, for this to actually work, you probably want to put it in a slightly different wrapper. And, and you have to convince the people to like, okay, maybe just buy into something that is a little bit slightly different wrapper than just traditional ETF wrapper.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I It's it's fascinating. We've agreed with that exact take and and even how we approach some of the sector funds. Like we, you know, we started at Wisdom Tree, very Jeremy Siegel based as we started the show today, you know, we value investing in dividends. Um, as we've been getting into the growth side of the market, we actually partnered with some venture capital firms like uh, Bessemer Venture Partners to do a cloud computing thematic teammate. Um, to do cybersecurity. It's great to see cybersecurity as your largest uh, sector in the private markets index. We have a, we worked with them to create an index and and something on that. And, and the idea is, hey, you, you get a little bit more nuanced and high growth. And, and even when Bessemer said, why did they create the index with NASDAQ early on was, well, it's to, to have the whole ecosystem from private to public markets and you could get good representation liquidity. So I, I, I think we did exactly what you just said, is trying to get closer to the early stage with these venture capital people. Uh, so so very spot on. I, I would love to talk more about L- liquid alternative, mean, that's a whole other topic where it is it is an opportunity. I think in ETFs, I mean, it is definitely a dissatisfying thing. I, I think people need more, there, you could do more, we could bring the cost down to access that space. So I fully agree also on that yeah. space. In, in our closing minutes here or so, any any closing thoughts on the future for Forge Global, future for what you guys are working on?
0: Yeah, I think you know um, super interesting place for the private market, right So like you know I think we're we're kind of coming out of the trough at this point so think you can see if you think about the lead lag you know you look at you look at to look at the index performance versus sort of like how the primary market is actually doing so i think i think this is the time to buy low sell high um, but i also think that um, we were sort of like an inflection point this is actually a good time to keep talking about indexing and whatnot for forge because you know again back to sort of the buy low sell high kind of thing um, the future for Forge is actually pretty promising because we, again, we're not, we're, I think whoever that is sort of like the ecosystem play, when you have trading, you have data, you have index, you, have, you know, sort of like investment solutions, That that is going probably going to be the one that sort of like win this race, not not the one trick yeah.
1: Well, Howie Ng of Head of Investment Solutions at Forge Global about their Forge Private markets Index. Fascinating conversation. Love it. Uh, thanks so much for joining us here on Behind the Markets. Great conversation. Dion Simpkins, sound board. Thank you for helping us in the studio. As always, you can listen to us, our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a good one, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show.